Hello, this is Omega Mail Episode 7. I'm your host, Dan McKenzie, and my guest today has been murdered on CSI. He's interviewed two Beatles on separate continents in the same week and famously once got Mitt Romney's advisor to call Governor Romney and etch a sketch on CNN. Actor, comedian, political commentator, and broadcaster John Fugelsang hosts a show called Tell Me Everything, weekdays on Sirius XM Insight number 121. But he is so much more than that. He performed in the Bill of Rights concert alongside Louis Black and Dick Gregory, which aired on AXS. He's appeared at Montreal's Just for Last Festival, HBO's U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen. He hosted America's Funniest Home Videos after Bob Saget for ABC. And Bill Maher once called him one of my favorite comedians. John's film and TV credits include Price Check, Opposite Parker Posey, Becker, Providence, Coyote Ugly, the religious stand-up performance film The Coexist Comedy Tour, feature films Girl on the Train and Maggie Black, and he plays two roles in the romantic comedy The Whole Truth, starring Elizabeth Rome and Eric Roberts. John has interviewed Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, Pete Townsend, Brian Wilson, Yoko Ono, Willie Nelson, Tony Bennett, Alan Rickman, Joey Ramone, Carlos Santana, James Taylor, Bo Diddley, Stevie Nicks, Robbie Robertson, Ravi Shankar, Beyonce Knowles, Garth Brooks, William Hurt, Helen Hunt, Ashanti, John, that's my kid in the background, William Shatner, Trent Lott, Tom Daschle, Bernie Sanders, Ed Asner. I just, I literally have to stop. I don't have enough time to list John's credits. Just take it from me. He's funny. He's brilliant. He's inspired. And when you get him going, he just randomly says stuff like, A man is someone who will do the difficult things and reach across a chasm to someone he's been told is his enemy because real men protect others and real men protect the future by making peace. Omega All right. So, uh, I don't know if you get the basic gist of this. Um, That's why I was happy to do it, because I don't think you should sell your concept short. I mean, you, you say like this is just a, a, a little thing, but I actually think that what you're doing is uh, is, is hugely important and relevant and needed. And uh, it, it's sort of, you know, talking about um, an element of humanity that is not served in our national dialogue. So I, I totally respect what you're doing. Well, I'm going to call that the beginning of our podcast then, because that's a good... That's oh. a great way to begin. Okay. I'm really going to have to control myself not to just talk to you about your experiences with the Beatles for the next uh, five hours. Um, <laughs> but I really am quite thrilled that you're uh, willing to do the podcast and that you feel the way you just expressed that you do. I certainly feel like it's important on some level. And you know what drew me to you as a, a subject, an interviewee, a podcastee, I don't know what the word is, wasn't really any of the things that you've done, you know, the hosting of the nationally uh, popular TV show. <laughs> I mean, you've done so many right. things. What it was is how you impressed me as a person when we met. And I think that's the best way maybe to personally introduce you. You hosted an event in Charleston in 2010. It was a gala fundraiser for an organization called Darkness to Light, for whom I had written a theme song and was going to perform that song. And that you were uh, the the star MC they brought in to to guide the proceedings, and it was all the who's who of, and the what's what's and the VIPs of Charleston, very fancy black tie event. And the night before, we had a dinner with uh, with the organizers, and you impressed me there as a just a smart and funny guy. But I didn't really know who you were and what your shtick was. And uh, and when I saw you host that thing, I was uh, really blown away by how you managed. Uh, 
to not just be uh, startlingly funny to a pretty dry crowd, but to um, <laughs> you really gleefully skewered both the Republicans and the Democrats there. And even back in, when was this, 2010, you said, that was a rare quality to see that much balance in a person. I mean, it became clear as I, I got to know you that you were basically unabashedly both liberal and Christian in your own non-organizational way. And so that in itself is probably viewed by many as a contradiction. But you have the sense of, of balance about you. And to me, that showed a kind of objectivity and probably revealed a willingness to engage with people that you disagreed with rather than just bashing them and sort of a willing to call out your own people. To me, the most extreme and funny example of you being willing to sort of call out or, or call in your own people is this meme about Jesus. May I do the honors? It's like covering your hit song. This is your big hit. Jesus was a radical, nonviolent revolutionary who hung around with lepers, hookers, and crooks, wasn't American, and never spoke English, was anti-wealth, anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer, that's, is that Matthew 6, 5? Never anti-gay, never mentioned abortion or birth control, never called the poor lazy, never justified torture, never fought for tax cuts for the wealthiest Nazarenes, never asked a leper for a copay, and was a long-haired, brown-skinned, homeless, community-organizing, anti-slut-shaming Middle Eastern Jew. So take that, conservative Bible Belt Christians, right? Um, that's powerful. I would also call them, I would, I would call them unarmed and Palestinian, uh, anti-slut shaming. Yeah, there's only so many characters I could fit in. I, I, I love yeah, how the, it evolves it over time. Every, it gets better it gets and better. Longer every year. But yeah. that's like, but this is, but this is an example uh, uh, of addressing people who are, in a broadest sense, part of your kind of community. You're looking at like, hey, you, you guys, you know, aren't, aren't embodying what I see as what Christian might be, and so I'm going to point poke fun at it. Um, I'm wondering if, since you're also, this is maybe a little nice spicy way to start, you're also unabashedly liberal, right? One of your tours was called the Sexy Liberal Comedy Tour, I think it was it, something like that, or the Sexy uh, I Liberal... Didn't, I didn't name it, but right. yes, I, that's, that's a tour I've done. You were seen, you were yeah. photographed there, and you were... Yeah. Oh, no, no, I've done that tour for, for years. It's a riot. We've it's a, it's a lot of fun. We had a number one album. We've had everyone from you know, Nancy Pelosi to Martin Sheen to uh, Lily Tomlin join us on stage at gigs. So it's a, it's, it's a party. That sounds so much fun. Now, given all that, do you ever, in today's heightened sort of polarized climate, do you find yourself still, do you call out or call in your own like liberal folk? Even my friend group has gotten more polarized, right? And so people are less willing in this sort of heightened atmosphere to criticize their own and I come under fire from my fellow sort of left-leaning people a lot for trying to like call out things that I look at as maybe too far, or too extreme, or unreasonable. Do you find yourself in that position? Or are you kind of like in the liberal camp and you know taking down the Trumpsters? No, I mean I'm I'm I I all of it. I'm not a Democrat. I've never belonged to a political party. But um, I will say that political party does not have a problem ejecting its members for crossing lines. I mean, I like to say Democrats eject them, Republicans reelect them, uh, and they will kick you out of the party. Al Franken never even got an investigation. They kicked him right out. So I, I do think that, you know, there's different kinds of purity tests out there. Uh, of course, we're witnessing what happens in the Republican Party when people violate each other's purity tests as well. Uh, that happens on the left. I mean, Donald Trump became president because 77,000 liberals in three states um, 
you know, had purity tests and wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think most of those people didn't have uteruses. But yeah, I, you know, no, I, 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 I'm the main one of my main takeaways from the Bible is uh, to watch out for your own hypocrisy. We all do it. We're all subject to it. We're all given to those things. So, uh, you know, I, I got to call myself out. But yeah, sure, I, I, I will call out the left all the time if I think they're being cruel or wrong or hypocritical or, or duplicitous. But, um. Yeah, that's that's never been a problem for me. It's one of the reasons why I've never joined a party. And, you know, in your lovely intro, you talked about when I played the darkness to light that that's not because I'm a, a you know, a balanced person or you said I was objective and I'm really not. Um, you just play to the room you're in. You know, if you're playing to a conservative house, you you don't do material that's going to make them feel insulted. And I find that if I play to a conservative house, this is pretty consistent. If you make fun of Democrats first people won't feel like they're being attacked, you know, make some Clinton jokes, make some Al Gore jokes, what Joe Biden jokes, whatever. And people will not feel like you're there just to attack them. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, when I was a kid, I had the most Christian parents in my school and I had the most liberal parents in my school. And for a long time, when I was a young person, that didn't make sense to me. And I couldn't reconcile that until I got older and began, you know, reading the Bible and getting away from religion, but getting more into the scripture itself, not really listening to Rome, but reading the actual text. And that's when, you know, my, my idea of, of manhood is, uh, when I was very small, my father, who was a high school principal, um, wouldn't let me stay up to watch the premiere of Battlestar Galactica. And I was a Star Wars freak. That was my real religion. Star Wars was a religion for a whole generation of boys. Uh, we, yep. we absorbed spirituality and understood what spirituality was better because of Star Wars. The dark and the um, light. Yeah, I could have read, read a college dissertation on that alone. So I thought, oh, uh, Battlestar Galactica, the big ripoff. And my dad's like, you're not staying up till 11. You got school in the morning. Go to bed. So I lay in bed furious, staying awake out of spite because he won't let me stay up. Well, forget him. I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm just going to lie here and be angry. And around 10, 10 30, my father appears in my bedroom, like in his underwear and he was sleeping, you know, his pajamas. My mom was out at the time. I was very young and my mom was working nights. My dad pulls me into his bedroom and I see the TV was on and I thought, oh, he's going to let me watch the end of Battlestar Galactica. My dad's not evil. He's nice, but it wasn't to watch Galactica. My dad pulled me in to watch the replay of the evening news because it was Jimmy Carter signing the Camp David peace accords with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. Now, I had no idea who Begin and Sadat were. I knew who Jimmy Carter was. The whole thing made no sense to me. I mean, Moshe Diane had an eye patch. That was cool. I was, you know, but um, I saw my father's face. And to him, this was everything America and Christianity could and should be. A Christian, a Muslim, and a Jew holding hands in peace and understanding and fellowship and building a better future. To my dad, that was everything. That was the American experiment. That was the Christian experiment. And so the next day I went to school and everyone else had watched Battlestar Galactica. But what I saw never left me because that was really how I came to understand what a man is, that a man is someone who will do the difficult things and reach across a chasm to someone he's been told is his enemy because real men protect others and real men protect the future by making peace. Wow. Okay. We could just end this podcast right there. I think a I lot have of fun, folks. Thank you very Thank much. You. <laughs> um, 
That's actually, what you've, I stole most of that. I stole most of that from an old Jeff Foxworthy album. So I, I, I <laughs> no, you know, you. well, you've touched upon a lot of things that I wanted to sort of uh, dig into. Where I was going earlier with the polarization, the, even in the in the sort of men's movement, is in the wake of um, you know Me Too stuff that's happened in the last three, four, five years. I've observed, and I think this is rooted in in how the men's movement started in uh, well at least kind of had its first big pop in the 90s. Um, there was a kind of already a split between the sort of mythopoetic guys, the you know, the uh, Iron John, let's go bang on yes. drums in the woods. And then yeah. the sort of the feminist, what was identified as the feminist uh, branch of the movement. And I think we see the echoes of that in, in post Me Too, where, um, and you could almost assign political leanings to this. It's a little bit more on the left, the sort of, uh, if I were to characterize the extremes of it, on the left, it's a, you know a lot of talk, a new terminology, uh, toxic masculinity, mansplaining, the patriarchy, and there's a sort of phraseology that goes with it. I want to learn to listen and learn to be a better ally. And then on the on the sort of right leaning, uh, there's the sort of the 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 snowflake cuckold crowd that are you know yes. into extreme uh, emasculation as they're. Uh, their reinforcing of this sort of age-old dominance hierarchy, and this sort of they've sort of co-opted a little bit of that um, that sense of like you know men have been socially disenfranchised and our roles being taken away of us, and we really need to learn to be kings again. And there's whole men's groups about you know kind of reclaiming your masculinity and sort of so there's this sort of like one branch that on the extreme of it becomes sort of men shaming and on the other hand becomes sort of men glorifying and and and, yes. and and there's not much that exists in between and that's the space i was interested in exploring because there's sort of kernels and truth in, of of both of those things yeah. so i wonder where where do you find yourself when you look at what, what sort of the reaction among men to to this sort of revelation of all of our problems, not to mention the continued ones. I mean, the, the most violent crimes are perpetrated by men. Rapes, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Gun violence, well, number one, yeah, right. But what, and then, but what? Ninety nine percent of mass shootings are carried out by heterosexual cisgender men, but one trans person carries out a mass shooting, and suddenly we got to talk about identity politics and who can't have access to guns. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. When you see people and hear people talking about what's up with men, yeah, where do you fall in that conversation? Well, you know, speaking as a as a toxic male um, <laughs> uh, who you know roid rage uh, the whole thing, um, you know, men get a bad rap in every step of life. I mean, we are raised to be pack animals by our peer groups, and men have a level of conformity instilled in them at a very young, impressionable age that. I mean, women do too, but with men, you know, men have the kind of conformity that makes you not go to the doctor when you've been bleeding for two months. That's the kind of stoic nonsense bullshit that's programmed into so many men. And look, it, it, I often feel like the problem with men is that we don't have enough of them. I don't know a lot of men. I know boys. I know guys. I know dudes. I know homies and players. I know bros and bras. Um, in terms of actual men, it's a little trickier. But you know, I, uh, I there is good in the worst man I've met, and there's the potential for complete toxic evil in the in the best man I've met. I mean, we are very malleable monkeys, and um, you're right about the the extremes. But I think most men occupy somewhere in between, and I think that 
most of the young guys who are sucked into this dude bro culture, this macho, you know, uh, this this macho ignorant stereotype that I think you're talking about. I think most of those young men are just looking for the dignity that comes in community and belonging someplace. And so dude bro culture, like other cultures of conformity, offer you a place where you can belong and blend in. It's what's always happened to guys. And that's fine. That's always going to happen. I, you know, look, if I had been good at conforming, um, I would have done it. <laughs> if I had been a, if I'd been good at blending in, my life would have been a lot easier. But as it is, um, I'm a fan of men who forge their own trail. I'm a fan of men who are confident enough in their manhood to love and have empathy and be stronger for weaker groups. It doesn't really take a man to be cruel and shitty to migrants or transgender children or any other kind of marginalized group that, you know, it, to me, real men stand up for marginalized peoples. Real men use their strength to help others who need it. So, you know, that's what a man is. Um, Amen. Amen. We, we, we can talk about dudes all fucking day. Yeah. But, uh, well, you know, someone, someone told me, I, I, I can't remember where I heard this quote and it was probably someone who got it from someone else who got it from someone else. So I'm just passing it on. But uh, okay. the distinction between a boy or a dude and a man is that a boy is someone who's concerned primarily with what the world, what he can get from the world. And a man is someone who's primarily concerned with what he can give to the world. Uh, at least that's one angle that I like. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. and maybe also what you said earlier uh, pertains to it. Someone who has a set of ideals that guides him. And I think that would be interesting, an interesting road to walk down how having a, a spiritual faith might inform that or not. Um, but as we already know, I mean, spirituality brings out the best in some people and it brings out the shittiest in other people. You yeah, know, I mean, it does. Spiritual people use religion to become better people. Fundamentalists use religion to pretend they're better people. Oh, yeah. And control other people and, and advance their own interests, et cetera. They're better than you. Anyone who's using a religion to claim they're better than you is here to waste your time. That's a problem. Um, yeah, the, the type you were speaking to earlier when you said, this is how I, I see a man who's, you know, uh, willing to be to love, be vulnerable, make peace, make peace with his enemies, listening to, engaging to people you don't. Um, part of why I was inspired to do this is that I do see where there's a lacking conversation about it. I do see... And this is one of the good things we can say about Hollywood. Over time, there's been kind of an exploration of who is this guy. I mean, the reason I've tried to brand it is to sort of support it and name it, this Omega male thing. The idea was to kind of take this sort of sham vertical hierarchy, the, the dominance hierarchy that sort of characterizes the caveman model, right? Where there's one alpha, um, right. not a great system, and everyone else is, you know, tries to fit in beneath this. And whereas the Greek alphabet is actually, a, if you look at it, it's more logically a horizontal. And so I, I think of the omega in sort of that, uh, the biblical sense, the alpha and the omega, where, what, are we, what are we evolving towards? What's the ideal? And I think that if you just go back to the 50s, even in popular culture, to me, the sort of OG omega male is James Dean's character in Rebel Without a Cause, right? Here we have a guy who is sort of a lone wolf, like he was not conforming. He's the new guy. There's something about him that attracts even the sort of prettiest girl in the school who's supposed to be going out with Biff, whatever, you know, and all the other guys, the dominance hierarchy recognizes him as a threat because some girl likes him. And so that what do they do immediately? They challenge him to some masculinity contests, right? And it's like the guy comes with a knife and he doesn't want to do it, but he reluctantly steps up and, you know, 
basically beats the guy and could kill him, but he doesn't. You know, when he steps away, he's like, that's not his deal. And he doesn't understand it because his cultural context doesn't have the kind of support system that that is starting to emerge now, right? So this whole movie, and then they do that thing where they, there's the contest of who's the most courageous and the other guy dies driving off the cliff. And who is this? And he befriends, he's friends with the, the basically gay people. character. Yeah. Um, and and the woman, and he's vulnerable and he cries and he cries in front of his parents. He's emotional. Um, and yet in the 50s, he's a rebel without a cause, even though like the culture around it sort of recognizes, oh, this is this guy's a little weird or something. But there's you see the sort of a wrestling with maybe there's a better way than being a knife-wielding alpha male who has to prove himself and his courage to his pack all the time, you know? And I think if you you sort of like watch this model through the 80s and the 90s, there became like these movies that were more about. You know, these sort of Ben Stiller type characters that are kind of wrestling with their inherited dysfunction of caveman masculinity, but they're always kind of a little buffoonish, you know? And now I think we're seeing Ted Lasso is probably the like the 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 culmination of now looking at masculinity in a healthy way, or of Jane the Virgin, that show. I can I can name a few things. Jim Carrey's show, Kidding. We're seeing like these newer explorations, right, of a kind of a healthier, more complex, balanced masculinity. I, I think that seems to be what you're speaking to. Do you do you see a little hope in, in that culture? Yeah, man, I mean, it's, better, it's just better storytelling. It's just better characters. You know, for me, I mean, the, the thing about James Dean in, in Rebel Without a Cause is that there's few films that show how horrifying and painful and lonely it can be to be a teenage male, even when you look like James Dean. I mean, I, I, I've always viewed him as a character who is just bleeding the entire film and in so much pain and so many unresolved issues. And, uh, you know, the guy only made three movies, but I mean, that film resonated with so many males for a reason. And, and his sensitivity is part of it. Nobody's rooting for Dennis Hopper at right. the end of that movie. Um, so, yeah, you know, but but that's not to say the desirable depiction of men is, is, is a broken thing. I mean, I think that what we all like is ultimately, if we're talking about archetypes, it's the Rocky archetype of a man who is compassionate and strong and who keeps getting knocked down and keeps getting back up. And I think that, you know, that's the reason why those films resonated with so many people of so many different political ideologies. Yeah. Because it was a, a universal struggle of a flawed but well-intentioned male character. And I think you're, you're really putting your finger on something because there isn't really encompassed in this concept that I'm trying to sort of put a finger on this Omega thing. It's not one type. I mean, the alpha male is kind of one type, right? It's this guy who has a compulsion to be in charge. He's powerful. He's the leader. I think there's just a whole array of healthy, admirable ways to be a man. It could be The Rock. Uh, it could be Rufus Wainwright. Any number of iterations of maleness can be healthy. To me, it's more about and by the, the way, we're just talking about how men, how men perceive what a real man is. I think women's points of view are much more interesting. And women have a much broader palette in terms of what they care about when it comes to picking a man. You know, the only people who are hung up on male archetypes are men. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I do think that there are some women. I mean, think about the women who were willing to vote for Trump after he, he said his whole grab him by the pussy thing. There are some women. I think you're I think you're yes. you're right. But uh, get inside. Yes. Right. There yeah, those those ones. Um but like but let's sort so maybe another interesting thing to talk about is we both have we're both fathers of sons. How old is your son now? Mine's 4. Mine just turned 11. So you're a little bit further along the way. I'm How already does, burned out. Yeah. And so clearly there are th 
there are things that you appreciate about your own upbringing, and there are in mine too. I had I had some really um, backward uh, things, for, through, mostly through my stepfather. My father was generally a very compassionate, sensitive guy, and was I think ahead of his time in many ways. But I look at my son, and I think you know there are all these characteristics that are traditionally considered masculine. You know about being strong and being resilient, and knowing your own boundaries, and being proactive, and and even those stoic to a degree. And those are important, right? Yeah. But then there's all those, the things that are so-called feminine things, which are about being self-expressive and intuitive and supportive and vulnerable. And I want him to have those things too. And I don't know that I would parent a daughter differently. How do you feel about that, raising your son? You know, uh, it, that's a great question. I mean, how do you raise a decent heterosexual white male in this society? How right. do you raise a young man who is going to be part of the problem? How, how do you raise a young white male um, in the era when white people will become a minority in this country in 2045? I'm not even assuming heterosexuality. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell at four, maybe at 11, you know. But yeah, how do you ma raise a good man? Well, right? let me yeah. tell you, I, I wanted a gay child. I really did. I coached mine. It's the trendiest <laughs> thing to have with a gay kid you in Manhattan. So I... I coached him. I mean, his life. first words were, bitch, please. I really tried for a gay son. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so yeah, far, I know. I always thought I'd be a great, I'd be a great parent to, to a, uh, a gay son. I think. Uh, I always thought a gay child could help me be a better dancer. You know, something simple like that. But uh, no such luck so far. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's interesting because I'm raising a child without organized religion, which is the biggest difference from the upbringing I had. And uh, it's still spiritual, still talking about, you know, all, all, all the spiritual questions and all the great figures and all the great religions. And he's learning about all of it, but I'm not teaching him. You'll go to hell if you don't believe this man in this funny hat. Um, and, and, you know, to me, it's all about intelligence. It's all about decency. It's all about how are we going to raise a guy who's a part of the solution and not a part of the problem? Yeah. Same here. And by the way, our kids have a much better village to grow up in now because the world's grown up a lot. You know, for, for every, re like, I'm not an optimist. I, I'm a recovering cynic, you know, like mm -hmm. I will agree with you that everything is shitty, but then I'll show you t 10 things that are great for every bad thing. You know, I think that as we are getting worse and we are, we're also getting better at the same time. I, I accept contradictions and I look at when I was a kid and I was a, a, a brutally homophobic child because that was allowed. When I was a kid in the 80s, being uh, mean to gay people was moral. You're allowed to hate them. You're mm. allowed to be mean to gay people because the Bible says so. So you be as hateful as you want. That's moral. That's how we were raised. No one ever read the freaking Bible, but that's what we believed. And so what was the change point for you? When well, you I, I, I got into theater at a young age, and I went up from age 11 on working at a regional theater, and I got my first paid acting gig at age 11, and... I was done with Atari. I was into, you know, theater after that. I was doing Shakespeare when I was 12, Moliere when I was 15, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan when I was 15. So I knew a lot of gay men and I didn't know they were gay men at the time. I was 11, I was 12. It took me a while to realize and it took me saying homophobic shit in front of men I loved, one of whom finally called me out for it. Mm. I mean, this guy was a costume designer and I knew him and he loved me and I loved him. And I was talking some shit some night because I was 14 and didn't know he was get 13. And he tore me a new one in front of everyone. Wow. This middle-aged gay costume designer told me to shut up. And in that second, I got it. I understood. He's gay and so are those guys and so are those guys. 
and they, and they were, were allowing you for a while me. to say all this they, stuff, right? Yeah, they, they love me, and I'm a dick. And one of the most important things a man can do is be able to stop and say, I'm a dick. Because there's one rule I have of being a man, which is testosterone rots the brain. Okay, you mm -hmm. can achieve great things with it, but it still rots the brain. And and if you can't stop and say, oh, I'm being the dick right now, I don't know how you grow as a man or as a human. And so this guy forgave me. And he came to see me do West Side Story in my high school. He came to my high school graduation. Ugh. He loved me, had me over his house. And years later, when I got to high school, I used to have gay kids come out to me. This is in the 80s when no one would tell anyone they were gay. And I had yeah. kids who came out to me because they knew I had gay friends. And yeah, they in our generation, yeah, nobody was, nobody was like, I went to a high school and nobody was gay. That obviously wasn't true. Wasn't true um, at all. But I mean, young people today have no idea. And this is just the 80s. It wasn't that long ago. So, yeah. you, you know, for me, I was lucky because a middle-aged gay costume designer straightened out a straight boy. Mm -hmm. And that was a blessing for me. And I became a better man because of it. At the time, it was burning humiliation. Yeah. My first instinct as a young boy was to just get defensive and be mean and double down. But I couldn't. I already loved this man. He had given me rides home after late rehearsals for all my childhood. And so, you know, I, I was very lucky. That's, um, a, that's a beautiful that, story. That, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of like, you know, how, how I began to grow. And then later... I was in college and I was doing the AIDS walk and two of my best friends withdrew their pledges from me. They were going to sponsor me for the AIDS walk. But when they found out the money went to gay men's health crisis, we can't do that for moral reasons. Oh, my God. And rather than hate them, I just realized, well, that's where I come from. And that's how far I've, and I, you know, my parents were never homophobic. It's just you pick it up in the culture. It's being the a culture guy. around you. So yeah, I, so much of our program. We need to be alive now at a time when we've gone from like literally uh gay people not just being an oppressed minority but an oppressed minority within every other minority right yeah gay trans people are an oppressed minority inside all the minorities yeah and to have gone from a place where you could get killed for telling someone the truth where you could get fired for telling someone what you really were and within a generation to see a sitting african-american president facing re-election endorse marriage equality shows that we have come so far and as, as, as messed up as we are economically in so many other ways, we are always also getting better. And it's fitting to talk about this around Easter time because that's the, the LGBT experience to me is the Easter experience. It is struggle and it is humiliation and it is pain and it is death and it is rebirth. Renewal. That's what yeah. I witnessed as a young person at the AIDS marches, at the pride marches when I was a teenager. And that's why I believe in the American dream. Not because of our military might or Wall Street, but because I have witnessed Americans and straight men becoming more decent and more kind. To what you said about the, the village that our children are growing up in, I think you're right. Well, I, I have friends of all from, you know, 102 years old down to two and um, the sort of millennials, even and the Gen Z kids. When I talk to them about their peer groups, how they deal with sexuality and gender, they're just way more open. It's not even about like, oh, the gay people admit they're gay. They understand that sexuality is a spectrum. They're all exploring. They're open. I mean, this is mo mostly liberal communities, granted. I know there's probably places in the United States where it's probably just like it was in 1982. But the culture is better for our children. This is kind of a, a gateway into a, a more esoteric question. Hopefully it's the kind you don't always get in a podcast. The question is, do you believe that there is such a thing as human nature or do you believe 
that whatever we think human nature is, is actually also evolving. I think of Jordan Peterson, for example. I'm, this is a guy, I'm not one of the people that hate him or that worship him. I think he's a really smart guy. Um, and he says some things that are just absolutely brilliant. And then he says things that I completely disagree with. One of which is that he seems to feel like there's a, an inherent sense of dominance hierarchy. There's a kind of a human nature that people always be the same way. How do you feel about that? When you look at the world getting better, getting worse, do you think that we have the capacity to evolve all aspects of ourselves? Or are we just kind of like a certain way and we're just getting better at dealing with it? I, I think that we have the capacity to evolve and adapt. And that's what humans do. Um, and we adapt. And uh, sometimes it's for noble reasons. Sometimes it's because the herd is going that way, right? There's lots of guys who never would have become anti-homophobe on their own, but the rest of the culture has left the homophobes behind. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, sure, I believe in human nature, but I believe like human biology, that's evolving too, like right. human consciousness. So what is evolving. human nature if it's if the biology is changing? When you say I believe in human nature, what do you mean by that? Well, there's different ways we can interpret it, right? I can say that humans are biologically, basically uh, selfish creatures. Uh, our, our most basic design is for our immediate comfort, uh, sleep, eat, sex, amuse ourselves. And it's very easy to look at America and get very cynical about what human nature might be. But I've had the experience of witnessing incredible acts of grace, you know, the one of the most racist presidents of the 20th century became the greatest civil rights hero of the 20th century with Lyndon Johnson. I, I, I've just seen too many times um, bad men grow. So I don't think anything's fixed. So the individual can can evolve, and that makes us think that the the, the entire species can evolve. That's a, that's, a, that's a good way to look at it. I don't know how else to look at it. I mean, I, I seriously don't know any other way to look at it. I have to believe the individual can evolve. I have to. I'm not good enough a person to condemn someone's entirety. So I, I have to believe it. And I do believe that as the individuals evolve, I mean, we've seen it, you know, opposable thumbs did a lot for homo sapiens, mm -hmm. language, right? a base understanding of empathy. You know, we've only been marrying for love for about a hundred years mm -hmm. in the history of this species. Like we are growing all the time. It's just, we have such shitty taste in music. We don't notice it. <laughs> You know, it's, it, yeah, it's funny. I, I'll call it the human condition rather than human nature. You know, this thing, you, it's, it's again, one of those things that's not necessarily contradictory. I think often people, even philo philosophical, the philosophically inclined will kind of cite nature or cite the animal kingdom or talk about humans as if we're just a really smart animal and sort of point to that biological thing that you're talking about. Like, oh, you know, we're programmed to just, you know, care for ourselves and eat and have sex and like protect our cave or whatever. But I, it, I don't think that's in contrast to the to the idea that that's one piece of us, the the body, the physical body that is connected to the animal kingdom. But I do think this is not necessarily my own idea. It's something I, I primarily found most eloquently expressed by Rudolf Steiner. This idea that the human being sort of exists between the angelic and the animal, right? We have this capacity yeah, that exactly, you pointed yes. to, right? That sort of to transcend, to overcome the animal nature, our built-in selfism, whatever. You know, there's something that compels us. Uh, we, we There's a certain autopilot version of that. Like, we don't go and murder everybody who cuts us off. We don't go try to have sex with every single person we pass in the street and we're attracted to. There's a, you know, there's an auto-regulating and then there's also, we have laws to sort of govern us. But I do think that in, in essence, we have 
uh, as human beings, this a spiritual capacity. And that's the thing, maybe, maybe the relationship between the spiritual self-governance and the biological imperatives is what's changing over well, time. Steiner is the guy who talked about the, uh, the, the hierarchies of angels, right? That was right. his. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've, I've always felt that as well. Like he, here's, here's the spectrum of existence over here on the left. You have the animal, which we are, uh, over here on the right, you have the spiritual, which we'd like to be right in the middle, reaching for one while always being dragged into the other is the human. And I can live with that. It's poetic. It's interesting. It's noble. It's sad and tragic at sometimes as well. But that's where we're at. And most of us have to live with that struggle between our human base animal instincts and the enlightened bodhisattva, dare I say, woke version of ourselves that we aspire to be. And every day, we some of us try, some of us fall short, some of us succeed, some of us just don't freaking care and do whatever's feeling comfortable and right. have some more Mountain Dew. But yeah. that is what you call the human condition to me, that we're all trying either very hard or barely at all, but we're all constantly vacillating between being better, being nobler, being more angelic, and being a hungry animal that just wants to eat, poop, fuck, and sleep. Yeah. Well, I'd rather, you know, call me naive. I'd rather, I'd rather err on the side of the belief that it's possible for us collectively to get better if yeah. a few of us are actively trying, you know? I mean, the cynic that's will always happens. say... I think that's what happens. Yeah. I think, I mean, Lincoln, you know, like, I mean, just look at Gandhi. Look at how... You know, in so many times, and I mean, Dorothy Day, so, so many times in our, our human species history, it has been the actions of a, of a few individuals. And of course, you know, there's millions of individuals who did, who worked as hard as Gandhi, we never heard of, but it's still people get inspired by good people. You yeah. know, no one's walking around talking about how much good Rush Limbaugh did for the world. No one. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did a lot for the pharmaceutical industry, I think. He sure did. Yeah. Um, Even the street level as well. So in your unique version of your own optimism, I like that you've, I think what we share in, in some ways is this willingness to kind of look at a paradigm that may be flawed, but has a valuable core and kind of just dismantle the shit that's non-essential, but not throw it all away. You know, whether it's religion or a political disposition, um, you don't necessarily join the group. You don't necessarily join the, the party in politics, but you espouse the, 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 the policies and the, the notions that seem in alignment with your ideals. You don't necessarily join the religion, but you have a relationship with God or whatever is the most sensible way to envision that, that higher power. AA couldn't exist without that, right? I mean, there's something inherently powerful and empowering about having this sense of something greater. So as, as a person who... By the way, I'm not against political parties or against religions, yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm not. I just, uh, I, I, you know, it's religion is very powerful and community is very powerful in terms of anyone's spiritual development. Um, I just think at the end of the day, if there is a God, it's, you know, all about your private personal relationship with whatever that God thing is. So, you know, at some point, um, a lot of us just, a lot of us join clubs that tell us we're right all the time. And, and that's call the it problem. spirituality. And right. that's fine. We all pick and choose the parts of our holy books we want to follow and say we respect. For me, it's when people start using the picking and choosing to justify cruelty to other people. And that's when I get kind of crazy because... And I think that can happen in any club, right? I mean, yeah. that happens in the clubs that are ostensibly about being good and not being bad to people, right? 
that's the essence of fundamentalism, whether it's Christianity or or, or Islam. Right. You know, the hardcore right wing fundamentalists, they're the one everything people say they don't like about religion. No, you don't like that about fundamentalism. Right. The overwhelming majority of moderate or liberal or even conservative Christian Jews and Muslims aren't oppressing women, aren't being cruel to gay people, aren't justifying violence because God likes us better. It's the fundamentalists of every religion. Right. And when we actually get to that place and realize that, you know, most of the average spiritual people have more in common with nice atheists than yeah. they do with fundamentalists. And so my whole thing has been thumping Bible thumpers with the Bible. You know, I just yeah. got really, really into the Bible as I got less into the church that I began to see that much of what passed for Christianity on my TV growing up in the 90s, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, had nothing to do with what this character of Christ, whether he's a real person or a divine son of God or a myth or the original innocent brown skinned man executed by the state, whatever Jesus is. Right. I began noticing that the televangelists didn't care dick about what he actually taught. Yeah. They were about the same thing the politicians are about, rallying low information white people to give them money or votes by telling them who they were under attack by if you're a christian if you're a true follower of the nazarene then you're down there at the border with blankets and water to help these people you're asking transgender kids how can i make your life easier you're welcoming the stranger you're doing everything jesus talked about yeah but, you're, you're not the but, westboro uh church member telling you know saying about how gay people go to hell and uh exactly. and shooting people in front of it so yeah, I'm on board with you there. I'd only extend that to say that it's not just the religious fundamentalists, it's even political fundamentalists. And it can happen on either side of the spectrum, right? I mean, if you go become a political fundamentalist on the left, suddenly you're the Bolshevik party, and then you've got, you know, uh, you're killing people in the name of uh, caring about the greater community. So it, it happens every in every day, direction. Like every day for eight years, I was called an Obama apologist and an Obama basher. Every day. <laughs> it's right. like, well, I guess that's as good as to it To me, gets, that though. means you're on, that's the greatest compliment. If that's what you're getting called, that means you're, uh, you have a, you have an objectivity. You have a willingness you know, like, to. You know, you show me someone better than Joe Biden. You know, go ahead. Fine. I'll, I'll, I'd love to vote for someone other than Joe Biden. He's, I mean, he's 80, 80 now. I was going to say so just younger. Years. If we could just get someone, you know, start But even there. that, even that, yeah. you know, let, let, yeah. can, I, can I just talk about that? Because yeah. the age, ageism is the one thing, the one ism that liberals and conservatives do equally. You know, we all do it. We do it to young people and we do it to older people. And yeah, Joe Biden's 80. He needs a nap. Okay. But I mean, when you look at how much legislation this guy got passed with barely any kind of advantage in Congress with a Senate that was devoted to killing everything with two Democratic senators who blocked almost everything he tried to do. And yet they hearing aids are over the counter, Narcan's over the counter. Right. There is the, the incredible infrastructure spending that's going to start, you know, paving roads and fixing bridges this year. The PACT Act, the CHIPS Act. I'm like, fuck, get a hundred yeah, year old president in there. Yeah. Like, like, I, you, I you agree with you. President, what a president can get done when he's not thinking about a mistress or his next job. So I'm like, fine, man. Martin Scorsese and Harrison Ford, Carol King, they're all 82. I'll hang out with them. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I want to qualify my, my little ding to his age by saying the man I most admire and who I'd happily elect president is my 102-year-old Uncle Edmund Gordon. This guy's still wow. uh, writing psychology papers wow. and giving talks the most sharp together wise man I've ever met. And so, I, you know, I was a little bit worried about Joe because sometimes given what old. you've just said. No, about he's him, old. He's old. We yeah. can say it. He's old. Yeah. But, you know, when he runs for reelection, if he runs for reelection, 
Um, he's going to be running against 95-year-old Herbert Hoover economics. Whether it's Trump or DeSantis, Joe Biden's ideologically going to be the young guy in the race. Yeah. So, you know, my, I'm just like, fine. Show Gosh, me someone that better. is a scary thought. Lastly, here we are. We have this extremely polarized, in some ways very hopeful world we're living in where younger generations seem to be getting it together and um, cultural stereotypes are changing. Um, new visions of being a man, if we're going to bring it back to our topic, are emerging and being supported. But there really is this incredible vitriol and polarization. I'm I'm heartened when I hear things. Uh, someone mentioned an organization the other day, I can't remember the name of it, that's just devoted to creating conversations that bridge polarity. What are some thoughts you have when you look at this world? You're trying to raise your son to be a good man, given his disposition and privilege. Like, What do you think is the way forward? Is there a way out of this extreme kind of siloed echo chambery uh, thing yes, that we have going on. But we have to be, but, but we have to be the change you want to see. Right. I mean, I, I, the advice I give my son is the advice I give to everyone about dealing with this world, give love and protect yourself, give love and protect yourself. And, and that's, you know, the only way we're going to move forward. Uh, we can't have anyone burning themselves out in service of humanity. We need everyone here. But I, I just I've seen too much evidence in my life that the world can get better and that life can get better. And I have such incredible um, inspiration from young people. I mean, like they're not going to be able to put women in jail for abortion in Wisconsin because a ton of young people showed up in an off off year election on a Tuesday to vote for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Like Kansas saved abortion rights last year. So I, I love that no matter how old and broken down and bitter I get, I can still be surprised and inspired by my fellow Americans just turning out, uh, you know, turning out to vote. Well, you're certainly not a cynic anymore, John Fugel saying. I, uh, I hear a, a ton of optimism and, and positivity and hope. And I think, I think hope, it, hope is a calculated, logical choice. And a choice. First and foremost, right? You can choose it. I really love that. And I appreciate it. I'm so grateful for your time. Um, I've already gotten an hour out of you and you've dropped so much uh, wisdom and humor. I so appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Maybe we can have a part two sometime in the future. Anytime. But um, Anytime. Uh, Normally I, I get asked to do these things and it's nonstop just talk about Donald Trump, Jesus, or the Beatles. So uh, the, this has been really refreshing and very challenging as well. I don't get to talk about this stuff too much. And it's it, it's something I care a lot about. So well, thank you for what you do. I appreciate you. And I will ask you privately about the Beatles at some point, but uh, for now, I'm going I'm <laughs> sure. to end the episode by saying, is there, wait, is there anything that you can plug or that, that where people can check you out? Is there a, you know, your website? Yeah, I do a show every night on Sirius XM, uh, channel 127 progress uh, called tell me everything. And we have politicians and celebrities and rock stars and rappers and, and uh, comedians and journalists and authors, um, you know, uh, movie stars. We just had Christoph Waltz and Natasha Leone and, Love uh, him. Eugene Levy and Graham Nash was on this week. Um, and if you don't have SiriusXM, we do a podcast version of the show every day, the John Fuglesang podcast on Apple or Stitcher or Google or wherever fine podcasts are found. Gosh dang, I was going to give you a plug, but I don't need, I don't think I need to reiterate that, but I will, if there's any place I can put uh, links and stuff, I'm going to definitely do that. Thank you so much, John. Uh, you're a fantastic guy. It's so great to see you again and catch up again. And I'm going to sign off for the purposes of the podcast. Hope everyone enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please follow the podcast. Review it favorably if you feel so inclined. Email me at omegamalesays at gmail.com. And who knows, I might even start tweeting someday at at omegamalesays. Take care until next time.